I'm Victoria Doherty, and welcome to the cold. Cold is the way revenge is best served, the way a war was fought, and the way a story should be told. And here in the cold, we are really delving into the Storytellers Church. Um, this, this, this week, this Sunday, it is Sunday as I'm recording this, and um, while we're talking about what I think is a really important part of story, um, and that is the architecture of a story. The architecture of the stories we read, um, that which is often expressed uh, in genre, and also the architecture involved in our own stories, the stories of our lives. And I was especially reminded of this when last night, you know, we went to go see a choral performance here at the, um, here in Virginia. It's the Virginia Consort Adult and Youth Chorale. And my daughter is part of the Youth Chorale. But this, this concert was just so beautiful and such a perfect start to the holiday season. I honestly would have gone even if my daughter wasn't singing. I mean, it was just, they manipulated us so perfectly. And I say that truly in the best kind of way, because, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it, you know, apart from the fact that it was in this, this really lovely church um, with tremendous acoustics, uh, you know, the, the, the songs that they chose, the Christmas carols, the ones that uh, were religious themed and the ones that were just, you know, classically, classical music themed um, were just incredible and were such a great hearkening back to sort of the Christmas of our youth for one thing. And, you know, for instance, you know, at the end, they sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing the way they do um, at the closing of A Charlie Brown Christmas. And the um, the singers then, you know, continued singing as they as they walked down the church aisle and, uh, you know, left the performance first. And then we followed. And by the time we came into the church foyer, they were standing there, baskets in hand, handing out chocolates, still singing Christmas carols. There was a violinist in the corner. It was so joyful. It was so wonderful. And um, it, it really, you know, got me thinking of the story of my faith journey uh, and of my family's faith journey, which is also, I mean, my God, it's, it's, it's kind of an epic because it starts with Catholic school um, and then it goes towards, you know, a stint uh, as, an, as a card-carrying atheist and then, a, you know, a return to the church. And also all of the changes and the architecture that has affected the story of, you know, our, our journey, our adult journey of the spirit, um, you know, especially since we had a family. I mean, for my husband and I, finding the right church has always been a struggle. Um, we're kind of iconoclasts, you know, and I'm, I'm, honestly not proud to say that we're sort of Goldilocks Catholics who often find this church too hard and then another too soft before settling on one that's just right. Um, and part of this is because we both spent most of our 20s as lapsed Catholics who had fled the simple church parishes we grew up in. 
you know, the ones that invited parishioners to eat mustacholi in the rectory basement at week, week's end, you know, pretty much wrecking our every Friday night when we were young and really wanted to be doing something else. Um, and also the ones that warned us of the ill health effects of masturbation. Although I don't think the churches do that anymore, at least not the Catholic churches that I know. But our, our lapse in faith was also in part influenced by, well, a hangover of kind of intellectual pomposity from our college years. I mean, for a while there, we became those insufferable atheist types who treat their unbelief like its own religion. Thank God that was a short-lived phase because even more than being a heathen, I just hate being a bore. But we had our very legitimate, more mature reasons for turning our backs on Catholicism too, for turning our backs on the story of our lives, really, especially of our young lives. We'd become enraged by the pedophile sex scandals that began coming to light in the early part of this century. The fact that our very human church leaders displayed some of the worst of human behaviors, leaving children, particularly, although not exclusively, young boys, vulnerable to sick and fallen clergy who were simply too embarrassing for the church to bring to justice. This alone seemed to justify all of our less justifiable gripes about our religion. Two things brought us back into the bosom of our faith, made us want to be part of the solution and not just walk away from the problem. One of them was having our first child. I mean, when faced with the prospect of raising our very own human into someone who will be a good citizen and overall credit to our species, we thought about what went wrong with us. and how we hope to, to rectify that. Um, we also thought about what went right, how we turned out not to be that jerk who doesn't tip, or the awful neighbor who's always ratting people out to the condo board, or the parent who will host a birthday party and exclude only the handful of uncool kids in the class and then post pictures of the event all over Facebook. Reluctantly, we had to admit that most of our admirable characteristics came from our grounding in faith. Even the meanest nuns and most whiskey-pickled priests, by and large, did their part, however clumsily, of inculcating in us a deep and abiding sense of right and wrong that has served us well in our lives. Now, the second reason we returned to our faith was that for the first time in our lives, we also found a church community that we truly felt a part of. Thanks to my accidental meeting with a priest in a bookshop in a chic part of San Francisco of all places, something people of faith might call divine providence and more secular types would say was the height of cosmic sarcasm. My husband and I got talked into attending Mass at a local Catholic church. A sweet, unadorned, mission-style church with dark wood and a bit of stucco. 
Honestly, we thought it would be a one-time thing, but we got hooked from the start. Out of nowhere, we found ourselves looking forward to going to church every single Sunday and listening with rapt attention to Father John's sermons. He would talk about what it means in word and deed to truly love another being and tackled sensitive subjects such as racism and sexual abuse with candor, but without the sanctimony that often accompanies such topics. Father John never put himself above sin, and his sermons always made us walk out of Mass eager to be better people, looking forward to the opportunity to practice what he'd awaken in our hearts. In fact, making the decision to leave California and move to Virginia would have been simple as boxed cake if it hadn't been for St. Gabriel's. We were that sad to leave our church and felt that we were doing our children a disservice in denying them the opportunity to grow up in that wonderful parish. We'll find a place we love again, my husband said. We just have to believe. And we did. Soon after arriving in Virginia, we stumbled upon a monastery way out in the countryside at the end of this road that ambled up into the Blue Ridge Mountains. Oh God, it was just gorgeous. Um, it It had a tiny chapel and offered an intimate, meaningful experience for the odd jumble of Catholics who drove in from all over the county each week. I mean, quickly, we grew close to the Cistercian nuns who made it their home and the soft-spoken South African priest who officiated our services. In that tiny chapel, we sat happily on uncomfortable little fold-out wooden chairs and once again looked forward to church every Sunday. Now, Father Joseph's sermons were a bit cerebral, unlike Father John's, which had been delivered with, you know, poetic language and even in an Irish brogue, for heaven's sake. Yet, they were inspiring and thought-provoking, weaving Nietzsche's perspectivism into into his Easter sermon. Perspectivism, darn it, I can hardly say that, into his Easter sermon and, you know, offering these forthright insights about the crisis of faith that he'd experienced in his life. During the sign of peace, which is the part in Catholic Mass when you turn to those around you and offer your hand and a kind word, I mean, truly, it's my favorite part of the Catholic Mass. During that time, we would turn to the the nuns, but it was for more than a handshake. You know, we'd get a hug and a smile and a whispered personal inquiry. How's little Josephine? The sisters had prayed for our daughter Josephine when she was born very ill. And that gave us tremendous comfort. And we felt this genuine flow of love between us. At the end of each Sunday service, when Father Joseph would say, Mass has ended. Go out into the world and glorify the Lord with your life. It felt like a directive. 
Now, as our sense of community at our new church grew, uh, we attended monastery work days when all of us who went to mass at that tiny chapel would come to garden or help box the cheese that the nuns make on premises. Now, they sell it in these like fancy little gourmet shops to folks who just love the idea of buying cheese from such a pastoral and holy place. And for heaven's sakes, it's also made by nuns. And so you can hardly blame them. And plus, the cheese is really, really good. And yes, that's a shameless plug. Um, but, you know, even after Father Joseph and his wonderful sermons um, had been called away to head another monastery, we remained there. And we felt it was our privilege to get out our checkbook when the plans for a new church were drawn up, a much bigger one, you know, that could finally accommodate all the faithful who had grown so fond of the monastery and were coming every week. We were thrilled. I mean, no longer would we have to stand or get out the folding chairs or line them up at the back of the chapel where you can't see a thing. And we would have actual pews and plenty of them. Now, when it was finished, the new church was certainly lovely. The stained glass is magnificent, and the interior is both simple, in honor of the carpenter we worship, and gorgeous, with a nod to the glory of heaven. But there's a problem. The new design, while in the Cistercian tradition and perfectly appropriate, is awful. Built in an L shape, it separates the nuns from the congregation. I mean, the altar actually faces away from us, but not in a like pre-Vatican II kind of way where the priest would officiate with his back turned to the faithful, but facing the altar and presumably God. In this new design, we only see the side of the priest who gives his sermon to the nuns while occasionally glancing our way like we're a third wheel. Now, we know this is in the Cistercian tradition, and this is what the monastery was built to be. The little chapel was never supposed to become a parish, per se. It just evolved that way. There are actually several parishes around town that are meant to cater to the faithful, um, perhaps in the way that we long for. So, 15 years into our journey of renewed belief, we found ourselves adrift again. Not a drift of faith exactly, but of a place to practice it with any real enthusiasm. See, the architecture of our story strikes again. Now we still go to the monastery workdays and are happy to see the sisters we feel so close to and we love helping them out. But we don't go to mass there very often anymore. Um, maybe on big holy days like Easter and Christmas, but... We do have a bit of cover because our kids have been enrolled in Sunday school. However, the sisters know the real reason we don't come to Mass as often as we used to. Um, it's not because Sunday school is offered at a different parish. And yes, we do feel a sense of shame about that. See, Father John the one from St. Gabriel's in San Francisco, the man who welcomed us back to our great and flawed religion, once told us that faith was our responsibility. 
it was not incumbent upon a particular parish to provide it. And as Catholics, we had to nurture and expand upon our own sense of meaning and self-knowledge. We had to build our own architecture to expect anyone to do it for us, whether that be a priest or the good sisters or terrific homilies or a sweet country chapel is simply lazy and doesn't, in fact, bring us closer to God. That approach is more like shopping for a good TV show. And he's got a point. But in these times of secularism, dissolving trust in our institutions and overall light speed change, it's hard for people trying to keep the faith. We need that architecture, the formality and distance of the newer, bigger, and better church that we helped build at our beloved monastery is not the same place of warm affection and affinity that it once was. We can no longer reach out and touch the sisters during the sign of peace or even see them during mass. A waist-high iron gate now separates us from the altar and from them. But. The sisters do always stay and talk to us after the service, and they tell us to please come and visit. They ask after our children. When Sister Sophie's parents' farm in India was wiped out during a monsoon, everyone banded together to raise money to help them rebuild. We bought her a big pot of curry at Christmas time, homemade by us, probably not nearly as good as the way her mother would make it. So for all of its design flaws, our church, our story is still there. And maybe that's what Father John from St. Gabriel's had in mind. This is the next part of our faith journey when we hold close what we've been given by the various religious folk who have helped shepherd us home. The churches that have invited us in and given us a belief in more than ourselves again And it is perhaps time we stop searching for the right architects and build our own house of faith. This is a bit of a departure this week, I guess, from what we usually talk about. I mean, I do talk about faith a little bit here and there, and I try not to do it too, too much. Um, Not because it isn't a worthy or interesting topic, but... um, because it is, well, it's very individual to people, and I certainly would never want to, um, I don't know, seem like I'm pushing an agenda, especially when it comes to something this personal. But it is worth talking about because I think a lot of people are struggling with this story. They're struggling with the architecture of their story of faith, both literally, perhaps the way we were when the architecture of our cha- our church literally changed, um, and also metaphorically. So as we enter into this holiday season, I did think it was somewhat appropriate and I do hope that you'll give it some consideration. Um, In the meantime, I hope that you continue to get something out of the cold. And if you do, if you are enjoying this podcast and you listen to it and you look forward to it, as I look forward to recording it, Um, I do ask that you give it a follow and that you tell your friends about it and leave a starred review um, 
on whatever platform offers you the chance, the opportunity to do that, that would just be so, so helpful because word of mouth, um, like with anything, like with any story, with a podcast, with faith for heaven's sake, is what makes it. Um, I will also put relevant links as always into the show notes. And I ask that if you are enjoying your experience here in the cold, that you consider becoming a cold member. And I will have some cold merchandise coming soon. Um, Thank you. And in the meantime, stay cold, my friends. Thank you.